God, that was shed on the cross, God. God, that that, that God, it was victory. Lord, victory over sin and death. God, and through this, the shedding of your blood, God, we have forgiveness of sins. God, at the cross, Lord, God, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love, God, that was shown for us. God, thank you for your blood. God, thank you for your son. God, we just thank you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And children, you are dismissed to head downstairs to uh, Junior Church. you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 is where we are. We are in a series that is going from Genesis to Revelation. We started this the first week in January, and it'll take us I think, sometime to the end of April. And we're going from Genesis to Revelation. We're trying to see what is this whole story, the gospel story, from beginning to end. How do we go from beginning in a garden and ending in a kingdom that fills the entire world? And so one thing that I've noticed is that I've been recapping the series every week for you. And I shouldn't have to do that by now. So we are, is this week eight? Anyone remember the chapter that we're on? Seven, this is week seven. So um, six times I've stood up here and I've said, Starting it out like this. In the beginning, there was a God who was a cosmic sovereign king. You remember how it kind of goes? Um, so what I thought we would do today and the remainder of the series, so this is a little heads up, is you can help. So this is where we're going to do some interaction. So we've basically gone through the story of Genesis. That's where we're at so far. Today we're going into Exodus, and then we're going to skip to Samuel, and we're going to really be picking up the speed. Um, but where are we at Walk, walk us through the gospel story. Let, let's do that. Some of you, you know this very well. Some of you are shy about speaking because you're like, am I wrong? Um, that's okay. Let's, let's take a stab at this. Um, what is the gospel story through where we're at so far, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Genesis? It starts out with a God who is a cosmic sovereign king who creates a kingdom and, and everything in this world, right? And... You guys are so confident. Let's go. All right. And he does, and he makes what? A man and a woman. Don't forget the woman. And they're made in his image. Because what? What are they supposed to do? They're to, they're to bear his image in wherever the kingdom is. And so the kingdom is to spread. That's the whole multiply, subdue creation fill the world, but sin. <laughs> so we'll just pause for a moment. Um, some of you have been Christians for a long time. You know these answers, um, and you should know these answers. So this is where we, who um, maybe have been part of the faith a little bit longer, are able to disciple the others and show them um, the knowledge that we have. So, so let's do that here. So we have sin. What does sin do? Separates us from, and because of that, God does what? Kicks us out. 
removes us from the garden. But what does the garden represent? Chantley, you said it. It represents his kingdom, which is also where God's presence is made known. And his rule is experienced by those who are with him. Now, his rule is everywhere, but those who are in his kingdom experience the blessing of his rule. And so, as he kicks them out, he gives us a promise that we don't really know a lot about, at least in Genesis, until we get to the New Testament. But what's that promise? (laughs) The head of the servant will be crushed. Thank you, Josh. Shout it out. Yes, there is coming one who will crush the head of the serpent. He comes from the seed of the woman. Of course, after Genesis 3, it just kind of seems to get worse and worse and worse and worse with all this sin. So we're going, how is this going to come about? So what happens next? What's that? God chooses a man named Abram. Changes his name to Abram. And what does God promise him? See, it's so much easier when I do the recapping every week, isn't it? Every week we're doing this, people. All right, so what happens? He promises his descendants will be as numerous as stars, so a great nation is going to come out from him. What else? A kingdom that will never end. All the nations will be blessed. A son. There's going to be a son who's Isaac. Good job. And then later, another son. So we, got, we have land, there's a nation, and they're going to be a blessing, right? There's the primary promises there. Okay, so what happens next? He gets old? Is that what someone said? <laughs> he gets older? That's biblical. Oh, Joseph. All right, so we go from now, we go from Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is the favorite son, so Jacob's kind of not the best of dad. Um, He has a favorite son. That son gets sold off into slavery because the other sons don't like him. You kind of figure that why. And because of that, Joseph is gone, and um, eventually, though, Joseph moves into be second in command of all of Egypt, so it's an amazing story there. All of Israel moves to Egypt, and then Jacob, close to his deathbed, now gives a blessing to his sons, and what's the blessing that he gives to Judah? A scepter will not depart from the line of Judah. So we know now from Abraham, now we have a nation, and we're narrowing in on where this serpent crusher is going to come. Not just from any of the sons, but from Judah, a son is going to come who will be king. So that's where we're at. That was a little rough. It was really rough. Just so you know, at the end, if you have one of those books that we're going through, at the end of every chapter, it summarizes where we're at so far in the gospel story. We're going through a book, The Whole Gospel in 16 Verses by Chris Bruno, 16 chapters. Um, it's a simple book on just guiding us through the, the whole gospel story. So I encourage you to look through there. Um, next week, guess what? Same thing, hopefully it's a little, little more smooth. Um, we do questions at the end of the sermon. Uh, that's the phone number, so if there's questions that uh, you wonder um, as we go through here, feel free to um, text those in, and we'll do those at the end. Let me pray, because we need some prayer now. <laughs> that was rough. That's okay. Um, 
Because that's, you know, that's exactly why I was like, we need to do this. We need to practice. We need to practice giving the gospel story every week. Um, so here, let's pray. Father, God, we love you. And you are an awesome and amazing and holy and righteous Father. And God, we're going to look into your word right now, the word that you have given us, your grace, that we would know you. And so, Father, give us wisdom, increase our faith, convict us of, convict us of sin, strengthen our faith, that we would know you, that we would love you, and that we would share your love with others. In your name, Jesus, amen. Um, so just keep your place in Exodus. We're going to get there. Um, before we dig in, let me give a helpful tip when we're going through the Old Testament. We need to realize that the Old Testament is full of shadows um, that find their reality in Jesus. Uh, example of that is kings in the Old Testament are meant to point us to the greater reality of Jesus as our king. The priests in the Old Testament are meant to point us to the greater reality of Jesus as our priest. The sacrifices in the Old Testament are meant to point us to the greater sacrifice of Jesus. The flood in the Old Testament is meant to point us to the wrath that Jesus will bring on the last day for all those who have not believed in him. Adam, representing all of humanity, points to the greater Adam, who will never sin, but will perfectly lead those who follow him into righteousness. When we read the Old Testament, we need to realize that it's always going to bring us to who God is and what he has done through Jesus. We need to know that. So when we look in the Old Testament, we don't forget about the, the New, but rather the New Testament is going to shed light on the Old Testament. And so today we're going to be looking at Exodus and we're going to look at one of the most popular stories there is in the Old Testament. God redeems Israel from Egypt. You all know the 10 plagues. We're going to quiz on that in a few moments, so good luck. Um, but um, it's easy to read that and forget about the New Testament. We don't want to do that because we're going to be good Bible scholars and we're going to say, okay, what is our knowledge of the New Testament of who Jesus is? How does that shine light on also the Old Testament? And so when we do that, we're going to see that the story, the Exodus story, is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so in order for us to see that, what I want to do is I want to give a little um, background to what happens before chapter 12, and then I want to talk about what happens after chapter 12. We're mainly going to look at like chapter 40, and then we're going to say, how did this come about? And that's when we're going to look at chapter 12. And so I think that'll become really clear as we begin. Um, so we already kind of recapped the end of Genesis. We have Joseph who is one of the sons of Jacob. He now is second in all of command of, of Egypt. Israel, his people, his family have now moved to Egypt. They live in the best of land. They have a privileged status in Egypt. Um, but then another pharaoh comes. And it's really surprising when you read chapter one because it's like, and he's forgotten Joseph and who these people are. And so what we have is that Israel is multiplying, Israel is growing, Israel is becoming more powerful within Egypt. And because of that, Pharaoh hates Israel. In fact, in chapter 110, we read this. Pharaoh decides that he will deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
And Pharaoh is such a monster that what he's going to do is he's going to say, I want all Israelite male babies, when they're born, to be thrown into the Nile River. I just think about this. This is a people group that is growing very large. I mean, we're told when they leave, there's roughly a million people. So there's a lot of babies who are being born. And he's saying, I want all the male babies to be thrown into the Nile. If you remember this, this is the, the seed of the serpent. There's constantly war from the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. If you wonder about that, go back and look at the message from Genesis 3 that we did. Um, but in the midst of Israel hate, or Egypt hating Israelites, we keep reading things like chapter 1, verse 20. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. So Israel just keeps growing. So even though Egypt hates them and Pharaoh is oppressing them, they just keep growing. And on a side note, we could say, why are they growing? How is this people flourishing in such oppression and suffering? Well, we'd answer that by going, well, the Abrahamic covenant. God chose this people to become a great nation. And no matter what happens in this world, they're going to become a great nation because God is sovereign and he is faithful to his promises. In fact, in chapter 3, he's going to choose a man named Moses. And Moses is going to be called to lead Israel out of Egypt into the promised land described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And how is he going to do that? He's going to do a series of plagues, 10, and uh, let's give it a shot. Who knows the 10 plagues? Number one plague, come on, we know the first one. River turns to blood, yes. Who knows the second one? Frogs, third. Nope, locusts is later. Gnats, next one. Flies, some of you are reading it, that's okay. That's what I would do. The plague upon the dead, a plague upon the livestock. And then we have, nope, before, the, before boils, all hell breaks loose. Hell, hell, hell comes, get it, see? Oh no, you're right, boils, then hell. I read that wrong. Boils, then hell. I even have it written out in front of me. And then what comes after the locust? Now think about it, agricultural people, locust coming, very devastating. And then what comes? Darkness, and then, of course, the death of the firstborn. So the story, though, begins with Israel's in slavery to Egypt. Now, let's just remember, Egypt is a superpower in the world. They are the superpower at this time. There is no greater country than them. They're a powerful nation. Pharaoh himself sees, them at, sees himself as God. And uh, one thing we just kind of see as we go through the Old Testament, Exodus or Egypt very much will represent the world, represent just the sinfulness of the world. Pharaoh himself is a satanic type figure. And so what we have is that really um, Israel is enslaved to sin, to the sinful world. Um, that's kind of the picture that we have of what Egypt represents. And if we think that way, does that sound familiar to us in the New Testament? sound familiar now think about it how are we described before faith in jesus galatians 5 1 says for freedom christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery so we're slaves what, what were we slaves to romans 6 says for when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness but what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed. For the 
end of those things is death. So before we have faith in Jesus, he says, you're slaves to sin, and the only thing that sin produces is death. So here, before salvation, Bible calls us slaves to sin. And in Ephesians 2, he doesn't say we're slaves to sin. He actually says we're dead in the trespasses of our sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here we have this idea that we're slaves to sin and we're following the world, the course of the world. So we're we're really slaves to the sinful world. And what does that mean? Well, it means all we do is sin. It means all we do is sin. We're born sinful, and therefore we sin. In fact, I was trying to think about like, what this looks like. Um, picture yourself just covered in, in oil and tar. Grease, tar, oil, whatever you kind of just any, pick any of those. Um, it's all over you. And what happens when you touch anything? What's going to happen to that? So when you get grease and oil, everything you do is dirty. Everything you touch is going to have grease or oil or whatever it is on you. And that's what it is. We're born and we're slaves to this world, so all we do is sin. Everything we do is tainted. Everything we do. In fact, we're, we're, we're so much enslaved to sin that we don't even know we're enslaved to sin, and we don't know that we need to be freed from it either. Which is why you could literally say a person enslaved to this world could be in prison, in, in, in like this prison to his sin. The door could be open, but he won't walk out because he's that much enslaved to his sin. He loves his sin. He loves his sin. That's how we are described apart from the grace of God. We're, we're sinful, sinful people. This is why before we have faith in Jesus, we don't live for the glory of God. We really live for our glory. We live to what makes us happy. Everything centers around us. And so here we see is that prior to sin, we are slaves to this, or prior to salvation, we are slaves in this world. And that's kind of our first point. Before salvation, we are slaves in this world. Just like, just like Israel is. They're slaves to Egypt. They're needing salvation. Before, before we have faith in Jesus, we're slaves to sin in this world, needing salvation. And then, so that's kind of how the book begins. We're slaves. And then if we go to the end of the book in chapter 40, um, we see that God's people build a tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle is like a, a mobile temple, and it's where God's presence is made known. And so in Exodus chapter 40, this is what we read at the end of the book. Um, and remember, the word cloud is going to represent the, represent the presence of God. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For, if the, cloud, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So here's the picture. God's people are enslaved to this world, and they're living in their sin. 
And then God redeems them, and at the end of the book, we see that they are now in the presence of God, and there's this mobile temple, this tabernacle, where God dwells. And when the cloud comes upon the tabernacle, they camp. When the cloud lifts up and moves on, they pack up their tents, and they follow the cloud. Wherever God's presence is, that's where they're going to be. Now, if we remember, this is something new. In Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we see God dwelling with his people. God's presence is with his people. But after Genesis 3, God's people, or there is no people of God because God has um, removed man from the garden and nobody dwells within his presence. Slowly he chooses a man named Abraham. Eventually we have a people and now God says, I will be their God and they're going to know my presence. So we have something very amazing here. A people, once again, experiencing the presence of God. So this is, this is kind of pointing us back to Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 2. A people living in the presence of God. Does that sound familiar to the Christian life? A people living in the presence of God. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, now, now listen to these words. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now here's the key part. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Who does Jesus bring us to? God. The goal of salvation is not heaven, it's God. Jesus brings us to God. In fact, in Revelation 21.3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So at the very end of the book of Revelation, we have the people of God living in the promised land, which fills the entire new earth, in the presence of God forever. Because of salvation, we have access to God, and we are promised to live with him forever. That's the next point. Because of salvation, we have access to God, and we are promised to live with him forever. But the question is, how do we go from slaves to the presence of God? How do we, how do we go that way? How do we go to slaves in this world to being in the presence of God? And that's chapter 12. So that's where we're at today. And the same question, the same way it's answered in chapter 12 is the way it's answered for us today. And so one thing we do here is we stand when we read God's word. And so normally we read a little farther ahead in the sermon, um, but today we, we push this back. So I want to encourage you to stand as we read. We're going to read 24 verses. It's a lot. If you get tired, if you need to, it's okay to sit. This is not an endurance race. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall, not, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and where I, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be a day for you, a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought you hosts of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves and according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. You all may be seated. So this is kind of a strange section if you really think about it. I mean... uh, Israel's called to choose a a one-year-old male lamb or goat, kill it, take its blood, spread it over the doorpost, and then eat it. Whatever you don't eat, burn. I mean, that's that's strange, right? I mean, imagine, like, getting that message today. Today, I need you to go home, and you're going to pick the lamb, and you're going to take its blood and pour it all over your your door. It just sounds, sounds strange. So what... What's happening here? Israel is learning the importance of redemption through substitution. That's the point. They're learning the importance of redemption through substitution. Moses has done nine plagues in Egypt. Has these nine plagues set set them free? No. We need the tenth plague. And it's through the blood of the lamb that Israel will be released 
from slavery, and they can become the people of God. In fact, in verse 12, God clearly says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Every firstborn is going to die, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So it appears there's no hope. Every firstborn child is going to die. Then he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now notice what God does not say. God does not say, Israel, you are the promised people of Abraham. You are the people I have chosen. Therefore, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to bring this plague, and every firstborn is going to die. But don't worry, you don't have to do anything. You're, you're just fine. You're okay. You're going to be fine no matter what. Just hang out here. I'll take care of the Egyptians. You don't need to do anything. That's not what he says, is it? You have to kill the lamb. You have to put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. There's only redemption through the substitution of the lamb. There's no other way. If they don't sacrifice the lamb, there is no substitution. The, 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 um, the angel will come, and the firstborn will die in their house. Israel is learning the importance of redemption through substitution. And what we see is in verse 25, that God is going to bring them to the promised land, and they are to celebrate this every single year. They call it the Passover. The Passover and, and Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, or the Unleavened Feast is what they, it's kind of synonymous. Um, and so every year, Israel is to celebrate this Passover. And in verse 27, it says why? Because it's a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So every year they're going to take Passover. And every year they're going to remember that God spared them through the death of a lamb and that that's how they became the people of God. They became freed from slavery so they could be in the presence of God through the sacrifice of the lamb. And that's what they celebrate every year at Passover. And in fact, uh, he even gives them a brand new calendar. In verse 2, we read, This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. I mean, here the people of God have this, almost what we call a new birth. They have a new time frame. They're given a feast to celebrate their, their birth as God's people. Their calendar is formed around their salvation. Now think about this. Does this sound familiar to anything in the New Testament? In Matthew 26, we read, Now on the first day on unleavened bread, so here we are, we're celebrating the Passover in the, in the first century, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Disciples are coming to Jesus saying, The Passover is coming where we celebrate the redemption of God's people by the substitutionary lamb. Where should we celebrate? Now at the meal, this is what Jesus says. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. So what's happening here? On Passover, Jesus 
says, my body must be broken like the lamb's was broken. And my blood must be poured out just as the lamb had his blood poured out. And the blood is what covers the door so they would be forgiven. It's, it's where forgiveness comes from. It's so that God's wrath would pass over the people of God. And so Jesus is saying, my blood is poured out so you may be forgiven and God's wrath will pass over you so that you would be the people of God. Jesus comes as the greater Passover lamb. That's why he went to the cross. So here we are, we're in Exodus, and Israel is learning the, the power of redemption through substitution. But this is really pointing us to the great lamb who comes so that we could all be redeemed through substitution. Jesus comes to the cross so he would die instead of us. So he would take our sins and bear the punishment instead of us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Now you might ask, why do we need the greater Passover lamb? Like why? Couldn't we just... Uh, of dealt with the Old Testament picture? Wasn't that okay? Um, let me give three reasons why we need a greater Passover lamb. First, we need a substitute who will perfectly and completely forgive us. The sacrifices of lambs in the Old Testament, were they able to bring absolute forgiveness? No. How do we know that? What did they have to keep doing? They had to keep making sacrifices because the lambs that they were sacrificing could not actually bring about forgiveness. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is why they continually offered sacrifices. And Jesus then came as the perfect sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. So we got to be careful. Did Jesus abolish the sacrificial system? Careful. Careful. What did he do? He upgraded it. Eh. Fulfilled it. That's a good theologically rich word. He fulfilled it. Uh, here, to illustrate that, let's, let's say you get a brochure, and it tells you all about Disneyland. There's pictures of the rides, and so we're driving from here to L.A., wonderful drive, and so we're all going to go to Disneyland, and on the way there, we're looking at the brochure, and we're like, oh, man, this is awesome. I can't wait to do this ride, and we read about the concession stands and all this wonderful, great stuff. And this brochure is awesome. I mean, it tells us about everything that's there. So we pull into the Disneyland parking lot. What do we do? Do we keep going, oh, this brochure, this thing is amazing, and we just keep staring at it? No, you chuck the brochure because now you're at the reality of what it was pointing you to, right? It led you to Disneyland. That's the reality. The Old Testament sacrifices lead us to Jesus, and he fulfills them. He, they were the shadow. Jesus is the reality. And he's the one who comes and gives us perfect forgiveness. Secondly, we need a substitute who also gives us righteousness. What did the lamb give us? I mean, think about it. What did the lamb give the Old Testament Israelites? They sacrificed it. Were they made righteous at that moment through a lamb? The lamb, that lamb could not do that. But Jesus comes so he would take our sins and give us 
his righteousness. We call that the great exchange. When he stands in our place, he allows us to stand in his place. He takes our curse and he gives us his righteousness. Martin Luther, the the great reformer, he compared this to a wedding. He said the king, representing Jesus, he married a... um, He married a poor girl with a terrible reputation that represents us. Yay! That's us. Um, At the wedding, she turns to the groom and she says, all that I have and all that I am, I give to you. So what does she give him? She gives the king all her sins, all her pains, all her shame, all the atrocities that she has done. They're now his. And he turns to her and he says, all that I have and all that I am, I give to you. And so now she becomes the princess. And she has all that the son possesses is now hers. All of his riches are her riches. All of his inheritance is her inheritance. His standing is now her standing. That's what Jesus does for us. When he comes and he's a substitute for us, he gives us all that he is. Third, we need a substitute who gives us full access to God. The tabernacle was pretty cool. And then it gets uh, morphed into the temple. So the temple now, it's basically the permanent dwelling place of God. No longer is it a tent. It's made with stone. And um, both the tabernacle and the temple, they had this place called the Holy of Holies. Y'all, y'all remember that place? And what is guarding the Holy of Holies? This giant curtain. It's a massive curtain, and the Holy of Holies is on the inside of the curtain, and then you have kind of just the holy place, and then you have out in the courtyard. And only in the, holy, in the most holy place can the high priest, the one guy, the high priest, come once a year. So, yes, God is dwelling with his people, but it's very restricted, very limited access. But then comes Jesus. And he, when we believe in him, he gives us his spirit. So right now, He dwells within you. Do you know that? Like right now, if you have faith in Jesus, God dwells in you. And then we're promised that one day, when God makes a new heavens, a new earth, we will be in his presence forever. His physical presence will look at Jesus. We'll see Jesus with full access to God. So the point is, Jesus is the perfect substitute who is able to redeem us from our sins. He's the perfect substitute. And if you remember, in the Old Testament, they're told to remember the Passover once a year. Why do they do that? So they remember that there are people saved by the blood of the Lamb, right? Does that sound familiar? In the New Testament we see that now there's a thing called communion. And we celebrate the fact that we are a people formed by the blood of the greater Lamb, Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, it seems that they partook of communion like every time they gathered. In fact, one of the things that we as elders were going to talk about is, what would it look like if we took communion more? Right now, we do it on the the last Sunday of the month. What if we did it every month or every week? Now, there's some people say, well, if you do it every week, then you're just going to kind of neglect it. Or we would be celebrating the fact that every week we are a people saved by the blood of the Lamb, which I don't think is that bad of an idea. So let me close 
three implications um, of the fact that we're redeemed by God, by the substitutionary lamb. I just want to give three implications. Number one, it affirms that Jesus is the only way for salvation. Um, you probably have talked to people, I have talked to people, many people think it's okay for you to believe what you want, I'll believe what I want, all roads go to heaven, right? But let's just say that we believe in this doctrine here, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's a good theological term. Um, is that what this teaches, that all roads go to heaven? So if we say that God is full of wrath because we have sinned against him, therefore, how are we going to have God's wrath pass over us? How are we going to propitiate the wrath of God? How are we going to atone for our sins? And what the Bible teaches is that there is no way to do that. And so you have Egypt. Egypt has all these gods. Egypt has a plethora of gods. Every single Egyptian experienced the wrath of God that night when the angel came through. Every firstborn died. Not one of their gods was able to save them. Not one of this polytheistic belief that says, well, you believe in your God, I'll believe in my God, and we all go to the same place. All of those gods failed that night. And the only God who's able to satisfy, or who's able to have his wrath satisfied is through Jesus Christ. Amen, indeed. So when we talk to people, and they say, well, you believe what I want, I say, well, hold on here. If we believe in substitutionary atonement, that we need someone to absorb the wrath of God, who's that going to be? Impress them on that. If God is full of wrath, like the Bible says, because we have sinned, who's going to absorb God's wrath for you? Is your God able to do that? And he's not. Now the second point, and it's kind of like the first one, but I thought it was, it bared um, just emphasizing. It reminds us that our efforts are not good enough to get us into the presence of God. Now, some people say, like, I, I don't need religion. I'm a good person. What we have here, according to God's word, is that none of us are good. We need a lamb. We need a perfect, righteous lamb to stand in our place. So there is no work that we can do good enough to get into the presence of God. We need someone and his work to stand before God before, instead of us because we cannot do it. We need the cross of Jesus. Number three, it gives us confidence of our salvation. Think of it. God sends his son. Would God have sent his son and killed him on the cross if it wasn't going to work? No. Look, as Christians, I, am, I, get, I get the fact that we all look for assurance. But I feel like many times... The Bible presents it really clear, and we're just saying, yeah, is there something else I can believe in also to give me assurance? Okay, we have God's word. God presents us, or the word presents us Jesus. And it says that through Jesus, like in Hebrews, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of help. Or in Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Bible says, if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Like it doesn't say we need to go on some witch hunt for, okay, but how do I really know I have assurance? Because you believe in the one who came and stood in your place. That's the Bible's answer to that. 
Now, there's some other answers, too, in addition to that. But the primary that we come to is that we believe in the Lamb who stood in our place. So I just want you to know, if you have believed in Jesus, then you can have absolute confidence in your salvation. Because he stood before God instead of you in your place and absorbed the wrath of God. So know that. So here we are. We're in the gospel story. God he, had, he creates a people in the garden. They sin against him. Now we see God has created another people. And through the substitution of a lamb, they are redeemed. That's where we're at in the gospel story so far. So what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to pray. Um, and the team's going to come up. They're going to do a song. And then I'm going to come up and give you um, a few moments uh, to be able to type in whatever questions you might have. Um, And we'll go from there. Uh, So let me pray and also bless the offering at this time.